joining us on another episode of Why Theory. As always, I am your host, Ryan Engley, joined as always by co-host Todd McGowan. Todd, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, Ryan. Nice to talk to you today. Nice to talk to you today as well. Today, uh, as you know, uh, today's 14 years, Todd McGowan, since I was in the car accident that very nearly ended my life. Probably should have on on, on aggregate. Uh based on what happened. I was looking at this thing earlier that I have, I don't know if you know this. I have, um, I have the, uh, all the file, like all the files from my, like from my stay. And I su- cause I had to submit them to the um, educational testing services for the GRE because I wanted extra time on the right. GRE. Right. And they didn't give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I gave them, I gave them everything. They didn't give it to me. Um, and anyway, but on the first, on the first page, um, it has this thing about, um, I was admitted with um, a what are, they, what are they called the Glasgow Coma Scale. Do you know about this? I do this know what a, that is. Yeah. Y- yes. Okay. So I had I had a score of three T, which would have made me about as conscious as a toaster. Oh, I think. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that was anyway. But yeah, that was fourteen years ago. Um, so I am uh, much alive and uh, well. I'm alive and well. I could not have making every ima- day count. Right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's blah, right. Blah, right. Blah, 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 yes, blah, 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 blah. No, but I mean, like, honestly, I wasn't imagining anything 14 years ago, but I certainly couldn't have imagined this uh, 14 years later. So anyway, I'm really happy to be doing this with you. And we're introducing a, uh, a, a new a new a new series a little bit where we're going to cover, um, you know, major and minor works of Freud. We're going to alternate between the two. We're going to do a major work and then a minor work. And uh, we're starting because, you know possible all, all kinds of uh convergences we uh we we celebrate here so this is a one of freud's major texts you can see this from the title we're doing civilization as discontents this is a major text that talks about the death drive and celebrating my possible death day <laughs> so we're bringing perfect. that together yes. perfect perfect yeah, together yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you recently did a video, right? You have a YouTube channel. I do. I have a YouTube up on on this very text. That's correct. Okay. So we're going to go so you cover in the video like a like a bit of a bit of a walkthrough, right? About the the text, major ideas, that sort of thing. So we're gonna start with that, but kind of get into a little bit more nitty gritty and have some questions for the text and some questions for Freud himself. And also, I think one of the things about this is that um, this this text is contextualized by a uh, straky footnote that is quite exceptional in the uh in, in in the standard edition and so that's the thing that we want to talk about as well uh right. so but for a little bit of a little bit of a walk through major uh major terms big ideas things a little bit of history uh, uh let's let's hear what you got so freud so this book was one of his entrances into talking about larger cultural questions so he he always had this dream of being a philosopher and i think maybe this is the one the book that most betrays that dream i mean betrays <laughs> it in the sense of realizes it right they could like mm. it, it shows that 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 he was thinking about that and, and so i what i think is interesting about this book is the trajectory of it so he starts with this idea of the oceanic feeling mm-hmm. that he says he never felt in himself and his friend Romain roland uh, is is has claimed that this oceanic feeling is the source of our religious sentiments and freud says no 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 it's actually linked to our childhood feeling of helplessness so it's the it's kind of the opposite of a religious feeling. And then he, mm. so I think it's interesting that he starts with the oceanic feeling because that's a feeling of harmony. Mm-hmm. And the whole book is really about disharmony, about the disjunction, the antagonism, 
the disharmony between the individual and the society. And it's really Freud trying to think through that and all the dimensions of that. And then, so he, the, the trajectory is, is about this disjunction about, and he goes through things like, can we try to love one another as a way to get over it? Can we try to, you know, be moral, all these different possibilities. And mm-hmm. then he comes to, I think some of his most pointed discussions of death drive toward the end. And then he, he, he goes from death drive, then he veers into a, a pretty substantial two chapter or so discussion of superego. And then he, and then he concludes with this notion of an internal war between Eros and, and death drive, which we'll, we'll try to unpack and maybe right. try to claim it's not such a war after all, or maybe it's a one-sided <laughs> war. Yeah. Yeah. No, this, uh, so that's, no, that's super good. I think oceanic feeling is one of these things that's well known from this. Right. And one of speaking of like this book being contextualized by um, other uh, things that are not Freud uh, necessarily, um, the most v- widely available edition of this book has the uh, intro from Christopher Hitchens. Do you know that? I did not know that. No. Yeah, yeah. It's the co- the copy of the book that I have. It's not. It's not the blue cover one. They made it. Uh, Norton put out, <laughs> you, I don't know if you, you don't look it up now, but they put out a, a like, it's like a black and white thing and it makes, Oh, I've it, seen like, that. Yeah. I've seen yeah, that. yeah. 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 That one. And that so has that's a Hitchens the, introduction. It's got the Hitchens introduction, which of yeah. course, I mean, like, so what, what is he most well known for? Right. He's one of the, you know, the new atheists, like one of the, like, so like, so the, the, the atheism, like the religious aspect of the text, like being foregrounded. Right. And, and, uh, and so that's, so that itself is interesting. That's the beginning of the book. That's how the beginning of it is is uh, is contextualized, and then the end of it is is contextualized. Just to, to get get it out here before we talk about it, is this uh, strakey footnote about um, uh, Freud adding a final line to the book um, because of Hitler, right, uh, and, right. And, and the rise of Nazism. Like that's the reason why he added this this final line. Um, so, book ended. Um, but yeah, oceanic feeling very big, and this is uh, a bit of a trajectory for him. Starting with the previous uh, book, which we'll probably talk about at some point in this little mini series, uh, right, Future of right, an Illusion, right. yeah. uh, where he's trying to work out religion. But the the and and the bigger thing with Freud, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe his do you, is it group psychology is like the first like single text, like big single text that really gets at like like Freud trying to work through individual and I mean, I maybe, I, I mean, totem, maybe totem and taboo, totem. Is okay. maybe, but maybe group psych, maybe group psychology is that, but I mean, if, I mean, because totem and taboo is more thinking about the group and I'm not sure if it's so much about the relationship between the individual mm-hmm. and the group, but certainly group psychology is about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean that, that we were saying this like before the show, like, like is I take to be the, um, that's the like the, the 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 genesis of psychoanalysis as such, which is like the like the relationship between the individual and the group, and the relationship between the individual and the individual, right? Like like right. being right, and then how the you know the those like impend on each other. Like how does the uh, how does the, the the group you know demand require uh, what it does of you the individual subject so that like that's the thing the the whole time but as far as like or at least the genesis point the idea that it comes from but as far as these texts that get into the idea specifically i mean like this this would be 
yeah, those would probably be the the three. Well, the three big ones would probably be Totem and Taboo, Group Psychology, and then this one. But this looms largest, I think. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's clearly true. And I I, I think that it's it's all. I mean, that notion of an antagonism between the individual and the society. I I mean, you've said this to me before. I think it's right that this is really the genesis of psychoanalysis itself. That we just. Mm-hmm. I mean. There's a way in which Freud's whole idea, it's kind of an anti-Rodney King, you know, <laughs> King is like, why can't we all just get along? And Freud's like, well, because you can't even get along with yourself. I mean, that's his basic mm-hmm, idea. Mm-hmm. And so once you get a bunch of people that can't get along with themselves trying to get together, that's even mm-hmm, doubly mm-hmm. problematic, I think, for Freud. So so it's a little bit like the Jean-Paul Sartre, hell is other people. Yeah. But it's it's it, I think what's more interesting about Freud's idea is that the hell is also yourself, yourself. before it's other people, and I think that's the notion of that's the notion of death drive that he's developing here. I think, and it's maybe in for him his most sophisticated way. I think I think that would be I think there's an argument for that because he's just developing it in beyond the pleasure principle, and then it doesn't really get a full elaboration in any of the other later texts except really this one. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, um, yeah, it's fascinating. Like, I mean, he, he's calling back to like when, when, uh, when one, I guess, uh, begins the, the more like, uh, when you commit yourself to the study of, um, of psychoanalytic theory and, and, and Freud, like you, you're, the big date is like, you think about, you think about, I know that there's like, you know, uh, Freud has different, uh, topologies, but I think for, for people like us, it's really, there's before 1920 and then there's after 1920. Right, right. And, uh, and that reason for that is because of beyond the pleasure principle. And then this is like, this is the, like, um, one of these texts that is just so clearly in conversation with the Freud of, of the drive, this, this, he's in conversation with himself, like working through this real fundamental change to what he thinks being a person even is like what the interior life, what is the, what the motor of it even is. And it's only been, you know, we, we live in society. It's, it's, it's like funny to, to think this way, but like, like we've lived, we live in society like much longer with the, with the idea of the death drive than, than Freud did. I mean, like he basically had these, like he basically had these like 10 or a little bit more really productive years you know, uh, of, of like, this is not the la- Moses and monotheism is like the last major text from him. Right. But for sure, yeah. for sure. And so he's, he, he didn't have as much, he certainly didn't, ha- didn't have as much time working through, uh, the drive as he did working up to it, I guess is the point I'm trying right, to make. Right. For sure. For sure. And I, I think you're right that, you know, you've already had longer working with the drive than Freud. <laughs> or maybe that's not yeah. totally true, but it's close to being true. And so yeah. I think that's really like, he didn't, that's a great point that if, if, if he doesn't have a mature notion of the drive, perhaps it's because he didn't discover it until he was almost ready to expire. You know, like he yeah. was he was near 70 when he came up with the notion. So that's if mm-hmm. you think about it, that you're like, wow, that's you've already all your really productive thinking is 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 if it's not behind you. It's still most of your I mean, it's amazing that he actually comes up with this original idea so late in his life. Right. Like that mm-hmm. itself is already pretty stunning, I think. And, and so I don't know. So I feel like that's, I think you're right that there, that there's a way in which he doesn't get to develop it as fully as he otherwise mm-hmm. might, but this is the text in which he, he does. And I think, don't you think in a way it's a little unfortunate because 
I guess we'll, maybe we'll get to this in a little bit, but but he, you could read this book, I think, and I mm-hmm. have to confess that I did read this book in the past <laughs> in this way, and think, oh, wait a minute. He, so in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, Death Drive was this self-destructive thing for Freud. And here mm-hmm. it's actually aggression toward other people. And mm-hmm. I think it's really easy to miss. There are two points in the book where he says, so aggression is death drive directed outward, or it's like a representative mm-hmm. of the death drive, right? And, but, mm-hmm. but they're so brief and so, 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 so hidden that you can almost overlook that and think like, oh, what he's talking about here is just aggressiveness. And there's this fundamental aggressiveness that we have that's our drive, right? And mm-hmm. I think that, I don't know. So that, I feel like that's, I don't know if I want to call it a weakness of the book, but it's certainly a way in which the book lends itself to being misunderstood. Yeah, that's, you know, you just, you just reminded me on this, just to like, there's a, there's a, um, there's a Monty Python bit where, where Graham Chapman is like, he's a news anchor and he's like clear. I forget. I think there's a, like a string of murders that, 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 that is being reported on. And he says, and he says something like murder is just external suicide. And then he says, lucky bastard, like, like the news anchor himself wishes to do that. So any, so I think like that could, (laughs) it is easy to come away with that being the take from this. And I think this text, maybe more than beyond the pleasure principle is responsible for why I think it's easy to, to think that death drive means drive toward death. Right. Well, I don't know. It's, it's there and beyond the pleasure principle too, isn't it? I mean, it, I think so. no, yeah. of course I'm not. I'm not. But uh, here it's drive towards someone else's death. I, I mean, guess that's I think. true. Because 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 of the more destructive. I think yeah. that's why yeah. that's why I make make that claim because the like the the wider destructiveness like toward uh, inclination towards society or something like that. Like that's a way to I, I think a way you you could orient yourself toward this. But um, well, we we don't want. I don't think we want to get into the nitty gritty on on that just just yet. But it is in the uh, the sixth section. I think he there's some careful word choices yeah. that push against that understanding. But I, yeah. but I, I, but, um, you, I mean, you said that this to you just said it now and you said to me before the call started that like you read this 20 times and you thought that was, that's his take yeah. here yeah. and that it takes, it takes, um, you know, Lacan to, uh, un- unravel that and like push it, uh, like in, in a more, I don't know, I don't know, more productive or uh, direct. I don't want to say like more, pure or whatever, but, but, but I think, I think (laughs) more authentic um, way or or smarter. I mean, I I do think that that's true. And I think, look, look, I think the, some of the problems with Freud's notion of drive become apparent in this book. And I think Mm -hmm. what we are talking about right now is one of them, the way it gets understood. I think it's not wrong to say that death drive often manifests itself as aggression. I think that's perfectly fine. The problem is Mm -hmm. that he kind of, he says that, but it's, it's obscured by the by the text, I think, a little bit. And then I think the other thing that seems to me a, a real problem with the way that he sets up drive is the way that he establishes this dichotomy in the book mm-hmm. between Eros on the one hand and Death Drive on the other hand. And that's something yeah. that Lacan will, he'll dialecticize, right? Like, I think there's a yeah. way in which what Lacan does is dialecticize the dichotomies of Freud, that he says there's only one drive and that's the Death Drive. And I think you mm-hmm. can see Eros for Lacan, he never talks about it, but you could see it as it just is a manifestation of the way in which the death drive is functioning. And I think that's the way you have to see it. And, and of course, that makes 
that renders that final line of, of civilization's discontents much more problematic, right? Like, mm-hmm. which, which side is going to win? Well, if they're both really the same thing, then death drive is going to win. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't I don't want to skip past this point because, Todd, what you just said is like very, very important um, is that um, Freud uh, often he'll he'll make a he'll make a dichotomy or like he'll make he'll he'll put a put a duality in something that really needs a dialectic. Right. And right. so like Eros and Thanatos emerge as these opposed forces this is like the, the the oil and water of this of this book and like um because you and i've just taught the preface recently um hegel specifically makes reference to you know truth and falseness is not like oil and water right uh where like they cannot be combined and and i and, I, and, and that's what he's trying to talk about uh in in an example of like how we need to think about the the dialectic of like what is the like the the interdependence of things on their own, like kind of op- opposition. So like, exactly. exactly. You know, how does water, put, how does water right. need oil would maybe be the way that, you know, in, in, right. in, 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 in a sense, you know, right. Like that would right. be the, so it's a union. Okay. It's funny. It's a union conception of the drives, <laughs> yeah, right? Like it's, yeah. and Freud, he's better than that. Right. Like, and I think you're right that he often falls into these dichotomies. And so the difference would be right. That, that just like you said, that, that the one, has to emerge out of the contradiction of the other, and, yeah. and both are necessary to each other, intertangled in each other, and that's a dialectical relation. But for Freud, here it seems like Eros is just this unifying drive, and and death drive is this is this splitting off drive. And I, I I guess what's interesting about that too is, and I think he he says that here that that death drive is identified with individuality and singularity of the subject right and mm-hmm, i think that mm-hmm. that i think is absolutely correct that that it because it cuts it's a way of cutting off connections that it it does it isolates the subject from the rest of the of the social order and that's i mean in a way i think you could say the answer to the question which is what he begins the book with. Why can't we all just get along? The answer is ultimately death drive that death drive is is making us go our own way and and separate ourselves from the rest of the of the social order and all of its dictates. Yeah, no, that's really really nice. I think like yeah, that's really good. And just for like to put it um in the uh, in the text of our of our conversation, the final the final line of the book that is uh added later. Uh so this is this is it. It's um, added in 31, I think. So the book's published in 30. Mm-hmm. And the line's added in 31. Yeah, and now uh, so what is it? I'll just give a couple well, I'll just read the whole paragraph. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, fate, the fateful question for the human species seems to me to be whether and to what extent their cultural development will succeed in mastering the disturbance of their communal life by the human instinct of aggression and self-destruction. Now, that's instinct. That's That has to be that's treeb. treeb, right, drive, yeah. So this is the, if, um, maybe, you know what, this could be some, this could be new for someone. So, uh, J- James Strachey, or Strachey, how do you say it? Strachey, I, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. That's, that's like. Pronunciation's a fetish, who cares? <laughs> that's right, yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Strachey, um, Freud uses two different words. Uh, he uses instinct, which is like the English word instinct. Exactly, except with a K instead of a Except C. with a K, and yeah. then he uses uh, trebe, which is in the German, which means drive. And so when he, when he means instinct he means biological necessity when right. he means treeb he means something that ex- exceeds it or or is is 
uh, it, it is just not biologically necessary. Right. Like, it's 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 determined by the. I mean, Treb for Freud, I think, is about the relationship between. It's the way in which the biological entity has been inserted into the social order, and that produces drive or treeb. And, and and almost every time, in fact, it might be every time that the word instinct appears in the English translation of civilization, it's the word treeb. So it, you should read drive for instinct, basically. I mean, that that if you had to count the great errors of translation in human history, this would be... <laughs> This would be pretty high on the charts, I think. It's right, pre- it's a pretty big one. Yeah. yeah. So I'm gonna re- I'm gonna retake the line and I'm gonna change it, but yeah, it's, okay. w- it's worth worthwhile going through that. Uh, the faithful question for the human species seems to me to be whether and to what extent their cultural development will uh, succeed in mastering the disturbance of their communal life by the human drive of aggression and self destruction. It may be that in this respect, precisely, the present time deserves a special interest. Men have gained control over the forces of nature to such an extent that with their help, they would have no difficulty in exterminating one another to the last man. They know this, and hence comes a large part of their current unrest, their unhappiness, and their mood of anxiety. And now it is to be expected that the other of the two heavenly powers, eternal Eros, will make an effort to assert himself in the struggle with his equally immortal adversary, period. That was the end, and then in 1931, but who can foresee with what success and with what result? So right. it ends fascinatingly on a question, um, and the question gets a footnote um, from Strachey. The final sentence was added in 1931, and then there's this dash, right? And then yeah. now this is Strachey. When the menace of Hitler was already beginning to be apparent. And so yeah, I just don't think that's right. I don't think that's what what prompted Freud to add that. But you know, who could say, right? Like, well, until what success? Todd? No, <laughs> no, but really, um, the, the give me the the his, the you gave me a little history on on. Yeah, on I just this. I mean, so the so the Nazi Party had a had a burst in the late twenties of 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 electoral popularity, and then it had a dip before its big. Uh, before Hitler was elected chancellor in 33. So it depends on when Freud wrote, added this line, obviously. But the idea mm-hmm. that you could you could somehow see Hitler coming, I think it's a that's a really a stretch. And that mm-hmm. that would, would be what prompted him to to write that. For one thing, he's Aust- he's living in Vienna. He's Austrian. I mean, mm-hmm. I know that the Anschluss brought Austria into Germany, but that, I mean, that would have been not part of his possible thinking at the time, right? So how could mm-hmm. he even have anticipated that Hitler would first get elected chancellor, then take over the country, and then annex Austria? I mean, it's like a, it's kind of a, I don't know, it just seems like it's a lot of leaps of thinking to think that he's changing this just because of the rise of Hitler. It's It gives, um, I mean, far be it for us to <laughs> accuse someone of giving Freud too much credit, but it gives him a lot of credit, <laughs> like I think, in seeing uh seeing something like right from right. the it, it's it's more like to, to me it like when does Strachey do the translation yeah it's later so so i don't know let me just check here really quick i i, I don't yeah. know when the, um so the translation is well he did it in 30 he did, i don't know it was joan riviere who originally translated it right, right in 1930 right. so he added that the question is when he added that yeah, that la- that footnote to the last line. So mm-hmm. that I don't think he ever notes when he when he added that because mm-hmm. he's clearly the one that added it, not not Joan Riv- or maybe Joan Riviere added it. I don't know. 
So it's an interesting question. Well, yeah, it doesn't. Well, so that's the, the, the text I, doesn't say. So. Yeah, yeah. Either way, it is like this. As we started, that's the that's the these 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 two textual things, right? You've got Hitchens who has this intro that if you're buying a current edition, it makes like this about like religion, problem of religion, the problem of society, like, like trying to like the problem of like finding a kind of community that could do a kind of, uh, uh, damage and, and destruction. Right. And then uh, at the end, which is that like, well then in, so you have this like, like a pole where you've got like religious society, uh, or, or re- religiously determined society can be very destructive. And then a secular, like Freud is writing this, this is what you get in the last line is that like, this is a secularly decided, uh, in, in a society that is also like destroying itself. So like right. where, like, and, and that, and then, then the, I think the conclusion is that like, well, Freud finds these two impulses, the, this, this Thanatos and this Eros right. and these dichotomized, impulses right exactly yeah. yeah yeah and that is um and and anyway and that's the like if you were you know looking for like the the quick what's the what's the quick um summary of the the like the single major point i mean we're gonna go with like a the spark notes version yeah, like it looks at that opposition right and says oh yes. that's the that's freud's answer to why we have problems but god mm-hmm. i think that's just terrible right and i think you know it's interesting because I, I, I think the, like his, to me, his great discovery is death drive and this, this way in which self, and it, what's interesting is he, he thinks of self-destruction as primary to aggression, right? And so he even mm-hmm. has these two points where he says that the aggressive drive is put on, is substituted for this self-destructive death drive. And so I, I think that that, that insight, to me, that's, the great insight of the later Freud and of this book. And, you know, it's interesting that it comes, that that, that Hitchens makes such a big deal out of the critique of religion. And, and I, it is a prominent part early in the book, clearly. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what you think about that, but I think Freud is at his worst when he talks about religion, frankly. Like, I think, <laughs> you know, his, his atheism, it's just, like, he just gives, like, this, the line is, the very famous line early in this book is, I regard religions as the mass delusions of humanity. And, mm-hmm. you know, that idea, I just think that's just so, it just doesn't give people any credit at all. Like, no, like, the, he does, no, no sense that there might be something else going on in religious mm-hmm. belief other than just this seeking a father. Like, that's his idea. Like, yeah, you're religious, yeah. you're just seeking a substitute father. You're, you, you're, you're like a, a despondent child who doesn't have the father there. So you erect this God that can act as your father. And I think that, I just think that's such a, I mean, I agree that that's part of the religious impulse, but I think it, it just sells short the way in which this impulse is also the way I think of Mm -hmm. registering an ontological absence within subjectivity and within the world, right? Like, like, isn't that what religion is also doing? And that's why I think Hegel is so great on religion, because he sees it as the equal of philosophy. And Freud just mm. would scoff at that. He would just scoff at that. Like this, like the invective he has for religion here is just, is, is so intense, don't you think? It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to me, uh, I don't know to hear you put to hear you put it that way because it's it's um I mean if we if we want to go with the Strachey um footnote at the end too is that like it's actually between the rise of two fathers right like as like fascism 
Right. And, right, and, right. and then, uh, and then of course, you know, religion and like this historically dominant force that he talks about at, at the beginning. But I think that you're, which is like, yes, like, I, I think that, that that's like a nice little thing is that like Freud gives that maybe gives that explanation too much explanatory power that it's, ju- that is just this, it's just the father. Like that's it. Right. And, and I think bringing in the, I don't know, the, like this, like this uh, ontological import of the, the whole enterprise is I think, um, I think pretty good. And I, I think maybe it could also be, I don't know. I wonder what you think about this. Like if he, his antipathy for religion, um, has also purposed with trying to distance psychoanalysis from this thing that from being a religion be, itself. Y- yeah, yeah. 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 I think that's right. I think that's right. Lacan even talks about that, right? Like, like, mm-hmm. like, why is psychoanalysis not a religion? He even brings that up as a question. So I think that's absolutely correct, that he thinks yeah. there is this fear for him that psychoanalysis will be dismissed as a religion. So this, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a narcissism of, of small differences is how he would analyze it, right? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. funny. Yeah. Which, a big phrase from, like, that's from this work, right? Is yeah, that, it is, it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Narcissism. Is, do you want to talk about that for just a second? Because I lo- I love that phrase. It's a great phrase. It's such a great idea too. That 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 the the isn't the idea that the most animus is generated when there's only a slight difference between you and the other, right? Like that <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, and yeah. I I mean all of us I think are aware of that how that works. That it's that it's it's the proximity that causes the animus to the the closer yeah. it is the more. That increases, and it's interesting that Freud connects that to self-love and narcissism, right? Like that's—I mm-hmm. think that's a very sophist—that's—it's—it's it's like one of his greatest little teeny points that that he makes. <laughs> you know, that you're just like, oh my god, that just has to be—that has to be right. It's for me the um, one of the things that explains the, uh, the like the popularity of like certain YouTube channels that are just these like people screaming at like like small like problems in films. You know, oh like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. like the is the it is it is just a, the it is an industry of the narcissism of small differences. It's just like this doesn't make sense because this person said this at this time, and then it's like, all right, sure. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, like I mean, I, I kind I don't feel like I've learned anything <laughs> about right, right. about about uh, right. about film as a, as an art. It's just like it's a um, but you know, it's the whole thing, like or at least like my whole thing with with uh, with that position is that like. Um, being permanently unimpressed is a position that one can maintain to great personal richness. Being permanently impressed is a way of being dismissed. Right. Uh, right. You know, it's, right. so anyway, yeah, it's really but, good. But, it's oh, really thank good. you. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, there's more, there's more to say here than just that, like, Oh, Freud has these two poles of the drive. And then Lacan comes along and says, there's just the one drive and you and I read from that position. And so like we, we see that like it's, uh, it's more complicated, uh, because like the, 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 the aggressivity, uh, is, is, is bound up here and, and is mentioned a lot. Yeah. And that's one thing that we're, we're going to talk about. I think, do you want, I want to hit the chapter six where, where he talks about it because you, um, you brought this up to me before the show and that this is where, Freud might be a little bit closer to what Lacan, like why Lacan reads him that way. It's not just Lacan putting something like he's like, uh, as again, I don't want to skip over this point because I think it's really, really important. Yeah. Lacan brings a dialectic to what 
Freud sets up as a dichotomy. And I, I think that's like a very, very important way of thinking about Lacan's entire intervention here. Um, and, and, and what, what he brings and, and adds to, to psychoanalysis. But, um, there's, I, I have different, you have the proper pagination. So what page number are you on for? Well, for I'm just at the end. I'll just read from the very end of chapter six. That, so, so if you don't, if someone doesn't have a page, they can see it. So it's in the final paragraph where he says this aggressive drive instinct is the translation is the derivative and the main representative of the death drive, which we have found alongside Eros and which shares world dom dominion with it. Like, so mm-hmm. he is there saying, I think that there's death drive and then aggression represents that. And mm-hmm. so I think that's an, that, that, that seems like that's a much more sophisticated, important way to, to think about it, right? To think that there's not just this base aggression, mm-hmm. that instead there's this, and, and what death drive is, it's funny, he doesn't really clarify it so much in this, <laughs> in this book because he talks about only its manifestation as aggression because what he's interested in is the way that we don't just get along, right? And so mm-hmm. it's really aggression that he sees that is the source of our not getting along. I mean, I, I almost think it would have been equally interesting to deal with death drive itself and the way in which our individual self-destructiveness makes it impossible for us to get along in society, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't work at my job successfully because I'm constantly doing these things that make my job, make me fail at my job, and that makes the whole society not work out as well as it could, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think... I think you could have gone the other way and just and not focused so much on aggression. But it it's interesting. Why do you think he focuses on aggression? Is it because he just he's because that's the most ostensible, it's the most obvious manifestation of of death drive? Or what do you think he um, I mean he Well, this is where I mean this is maybe what brings me it's it's hard. I think because he writes was he writes a why war three years later. Yeah. Or yeah. Um I just it's it's I'm trying to I'm trying to resist that pull, to because that's the Strachey. Is that if that is Strachey or maybe it's Revere? Um, but uh, of but the, the reading the last line, which effectively puts this like this this quilting point on the entire thing that like this is about uh, this is about war, war and right. self destruction, right? Um, and, and we're we're gonna I mean because he even says it we're gonna blow each other up with uh, with nuclear weapons and, and although there's like, no nuclear weapons, it's interesting he comes up with yeah. this. Idea. That's true. He doesn't. You know, know it's right. like 15 years before there's any nuclear weapon, so it's pretty prescient on his part. <laughs> that's right? a good point. Like yeah. we actually didn't have the capacity to blow ourselves up when he he said that. But Don't you yeah, think that's funny? That's, I mean, it's nice. like you read that now and you're like, oh yeah, 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 yeah we could blow ourselves up. No, but, of course. Well, yeah, we couldn't. The, the yeah, we couldn't. Yeah. Even even in 31, right? Like that was the no, yeah. no. Um, I mean, so I think you know, August yeah. 6th, 1945, um, right? Like there's. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm playing, this is just a total, I'll get back to our regularly scheduled thing. This is, um, I'm playing this fantastic video game that's kind of like a, a visual novel, like half of it's called 13 Sentinels. It has an awful, non-charming a title. 13 Sentinels, colon, Aegis Rim. Terrible, like, it tells you nothing. But it's um, a visual novel that spans, like, all kinds of time about these uh, these these kids in Japan who are end up in like a time loop and they're trying to prevent the destruction of the world. And for two of the characters that they're in Japan in 1945. And it's the only time that I've played a game where like the, the U S is just no bones about it. The villain for these people. Yeah. And, um, and what, 
it's it's just it's really interesting the way that the game handles like because they get pulled out before the war is over and they have this pull in them where they want to bring this technology back in time to prevent thing prevent the war from happening and stop the americans and everyone tells them like look that's over like you you have to accept that like there's a future where the world is destroyed where they they don't accept but that is history and they have to move on it's like don't you think it's interesting that yeah. that if you define terrorism as killing civilians, right? Yes. Then those are the greatest terrorist acts by far in human history, right? It's shocking. It's right. yeah. It's. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah. maybe you don't define terrorism that way. Like, if there's war, maybe you say there's war. There's no such thing. But whatever. But yeah. I hear that definition proffered a lot, mm-hmm. and the, the, there's just then there's just no question who's the greatest terrorist nation in human history right oh yeah no 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 question at all the 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 constant the constant bad guy be the be the be the u.s on on that point um but to the okay so like that's 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 putting more war around context around this uh right and maybe it's maybe it's irresistible in some ways but so why is it aggression um i think probably um it's isn't this the the kind of the um the canonical way that people talk about this is that he was he was he's between two wars it's this interwar period he had these he obviously was treating soldiers uh who were suffering from what at the time was referred to as shell shock but you know he's on the front line literally on the front lines of therapeutic practice and understanding post-traumatic stress disorder like he's understanding trauma in a way that is very sophisticated for the time and very very close to the way that we understand it now um and so, so that's, I think, probably part of his practice. And so he's thinking about that. And um, I, I suppose, yeah, I don't know. That, that's my only answer is that. And I think that that, that then pushes against what we were just saying about like a straight G, like kind of like over. Uh, yeah, because I think you're probably right. Like, don't you think World War One? I? I think the impact of World War One on him was was immense. So I well, think so that well, that's better than well, not not better, but that's a different. That's different than it's World War Two that he anticipates, that is, right? Right, which yes, is crazy. Yes. Like nobody, yeah. like, <laughs> like there was no World War Two. Like there, yeah. it wasn't an interwar <laughs> period because there was no, you know, from their perspective, there was no, there's no <laughs> upcoming war. So I think that that you know, I, I I do think that that, you know, for all of Europe, I think that World mm-hmm. War One, the the violence of it and the and the and the reality of it was just was 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 so uh, apocal for them. And I, mm-hmm. so I think that that probably, I think that is maybe why he's thinking of aggression so much more than self-destruction. And mm-hmm. I also think he wants to, I think, I think the other thing that's driving him is this whole, his fixation on religion and, and, mm-hmm. and the notion of universal love and religion. Right. And, and he, he calls out St. Francis, right. For, for yeah. this idea of like, we can, in fact, St. Francis didn't just want to love people. He wanted to love all of animals and everyone. Like he wanted to extend this love un- totally universally. And, and mm-hmm. Freud just thinks that's, that's a, that's a horrible idea, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. th- it has this famous, famous line that my love is a, is a precious thing. I'm not just going to give it out to anything. Right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and he also thinks like you, if you try to extend love to everyone, it ceases to be love. It has to be exclusive. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I wonder, I've always wondered about that. So Lacan is very critical on this. And so in seminar mm-hmm. seven, he says for Freud recoils from mm-hmm. universal love and the jouissance of implied in that. Right. So mm-hmm. he, he thinks this is Freud backing down, but I don't know. I, most people I know find this pretty appealing that when he, this critique of, 
of universal love and Christianity, and and mm-hmm. because they think that's true, like if if love isn't discerning, then is it really love at all? Mm. But I I don't know. I I have to confess that this is another area where I I I choose. I think the Christian notion of 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 loving like universal love. I I'm in favor of that. I, I think mm-hmm. so. And and in the way that Hegel was too, so I I think that that's I don't know I feel like I I don't know I I, I see this as a as a point in the text where Freud misses a, a potential radicality mm-hmm. because and I wonder if it's because he's stuck in this dichotomized way of understanding the drive and doesn't see how maybe love is a, there's a possibility for love if we understand death drive in a different kind of way I don't know. I, I think it's it's no, no, no. I mean, I think um, probably why, or I guess th- this gets a little bit close to um, you know, one uh, one of my bones in the throat, uh, which is the the um, like, I think it's a bit of a cynical position, which is always very like I was just saying about uh the, these YouTube screen boys about uh about cinema uh, fa- faults or flaws or whatever it, is it's a, like if you're. I think if you're on the side of like, um, yep, people are always going to destroy each other. That's just what's going to happen. And also, um, like, you know, love needs to be singular and like, it, it can't be given out to everyone. Like, like I just, these are, I think immediately like really like popular positions because it, um, I think because there, there's, um, like, it sounds a little hallmarky, what what you what you just said but this is the, but this is the but this is the trick this is the this is the hard thing is that like it, hallmark doesn't get to have that like it, it is actually true but when they put their you know corporate mass produced like sanitized thing on it it makes it seem less true so that doesn't mean the opposite is the real truth it like their thing can still be true, but you, it, your position toward it has to be a little bit different. Right. And I think that's a, I think that's a hard thing for, you know, like I, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I've said this to, I've said this to students and I've, I've, I've written this in something that I hope is going to get published. But like, um, one of the things about our contemporary moment is that like, we're all, we are all like in our individual boxes, especially when, you know, like we teach on zoom, like everyone is in a box and like, you know, the, in it's, they're just like every like other, like car commercial is like being to, you know, like togetherness, like being, is really important. Like, you know, like we've learned that like we need to stick together to, and like that just seems not true when, someone when the commercial wants you to buy a Miller life light and you know drive a drive a fucking Ford but like it is true like it, it is like like the, the, right. the, the like you and I like you and I you're in Vermont and I am in Claremont California and I, like you cannot convince me that the two of us are not together right now having right. this like right. doing right. this right right you know right. and and we're in this larger thing like we're all in this pan- pandemic we're in this this universal trauma and you like we are in it together and but again where is that message the the largest it is in like anodyne and sanitized like quasi political corporate like capitalist messages and it just makes it seem not true and so the opposite seems to be like the position where, where truth actually lies, but it's just like, I, I, I refuse to allow 
corporate America to have that. Like I, I just, I, I, I refuse it. Yeah. Beautiful point. I, I, I love what you said. And I, I think it's interesting that I think people like this part of Freud because he, he sounds most like a capitalist here, doesn't yeah. he? Like, like, like that's what a capitalist says. Like my love is a precious thing. Screw you. I'm not going to just give it out to everyone. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a communist says, I'm going to give out my love to everyone. Right. And, and, yeah. and, and Freud, I just think this is a time when he like recoils from that idea. And I think that that's, you know, it's too bad that I think that that's, it's interesting because he does, this is this, there's, there, this is one of the places where he makes, it's also much more developed in new introductory lectures on psychoanalysis, but this is one of the places where he launches into a little diatribe against communism. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, and, and, you should mention the, mention the line. Cause I, it's yeah. Really like what does he say that, 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 um, that, 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 um, that, that, wh- what's going to happen. I'm the world is, we're, we're all worried what's going to happen after the Soviets have wiped out their bourgeoisie. Right. Mm-hmm. And so his, his worry is of course, that once they ha- lose that target for their, their aggression, it's going to manifest itself on the rest of the world, mm-hmm. which of course I don't think really happened. Um, but, but except obviously in Afghanistan and Hungary mm-hmm. and Czechoslovakia, I mean, there are places, mm-hmm. um, but, but it's interesting that he does then come around, right? This is isn't this one of the the more fascinating lines of the entire book where he he comes around and then and then and then so he says at the very end of the book he says I'm not going to rise up in front of my fellow uh, people and and act like a prophet. I have no mm-hmm. I'm, I have no plan for mm-hmm. I'm like I'm not a revolutionary. I have no plan yes. for how it's going to be right. But mm-hmm. then he's and then he says and then a couple pages before that he says. As long as virtue isn't rewarded on earth, everyone who preaches ethics is going to preach in vain. And then he says something that I find most interesting, that he says the real change in human, if if there was a real change in human relationships, the real human relationship to possession, Mm -hmm. that might help in the direction of living more ethically more than anything else. And and the word he uses in German is besitz, possession, right? So, So that's... That's pretty amazing. I mean, it's funny that he denounces communism on the one hand and that he denounces <laughs> possession on yeah. the other, right? It's a strange it's a, kind it's a of fascinating, thing. We went through this, and this is a really interesting point where he, he it's two different words. He's, he talks about objects and he talks about possessions. And it amounts to, I think, I, th- I think would we be willing to claim, like it amounts to sort of like an unacknowledged theory of, the material objects. I think so. It, yeah. Yeah. Because he uses the, this word. Can you say the word again? In yeah, it's besitz. B-E-S-I-T-Z. Besitz. Always negative, right? Always negative when it's used in, in civilization in this book. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and it's an interesting little. Whereas object, which is the, obviously the word, the German word for, for object is, is, it's sexual object, he says. And so it's always mm-hmm. positive. It's always like an object that we desire and get enjoyment mm-hmm. from, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, you're, what you're describing is exactly the case in the German. Yeah, that's, uh, it's fascinating. There's a line, oh, do I have it or do you have it? Because we, we talked about it before and where it brings kind of everything together. Um, yeah, this is pretty, this is great. So um, on, I have the, uh, I think I have the, this is the, 
think you have the standard edition, don't you? I do have the standard edition, yeah. yeah. So this is the... um, Just say the chapter. I'll just say the chapter. It's uh, in chapter... uh, It's in chapter seven. And it's... uh, Paragraph that begins the contradiction between this statement. And I I mean, you'll be able to find it. It's it's, um, kind of in the... It's in the middle-ish toward the end of the... Chapter anyway, you'll find it. But he's got this this line um, where he's talking about superego. This is the um, where he's developing this idea, which we wanted to talk about. Um, and just to give sort of like full, um, full con- or just as full con- context as I can give, a considerable, a considerable amount of aggressiveness must be developed in the child against the authority which prevents him from having his first, but nonetheless his most important satisfaction, whatever the kind of instinctual deprivation that is demanded of him may be, but he is obliged to renounce the satisfaction of this revengeful aggressiveness. He finds his way out of this economically difficult situation with the help of familiar mechanisms. By means of identification, he takes the unattackable authority into himself. And then this is a sentence that like brings all these different terms together. We've been talking about aggressiveness and and uh, and superego and possessions, right? Uh, the authority now turns into a superego and enters into possession of all the aggressiveness which a child could have liked to exercise against it. The child's ego has to content itself with the unhappy role of the authority, the father, who has been thus degraded. And then there's a little translation thing on that that maybe we're going to talk about. But um, So besitz, again, is the word he uses here. So that's possession. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's also when he is talking about communism and and that, like, you know, he, he is on the side of... He's clearly on the side of a certain orientation toward objects, which is to, um, I think... Which is a, like a, w- we need to disinvest, right, right, and 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 that um, I think is a really interesting take from this book. Yeah, I think that's a great choice of words: disinvest and enjoy the object. Right, like that's the mm-hmm. like if you possess the object, you can't yeah. enjoy the. I mean, like it's like uh, it's like Sting, right? If you love someone, that love something, set it yeah. free, right? Like yep. that. Mm-hmm. That like I think that that's I think that's his idea in a sense, right? Like that, that, that if you, that if you hold on to your possession of the object, then you can't enjoy the object. And that the, and that even though it doesn't get worked out here, I think you can see him coming up to that. I mean, he, he makes that evident in the mm-hmm. way that he describes things, even though he doesn't fully work that out as a theory here, I think. I think that it's, like in this way, you can see that there's this that there's an aggressiveness when I would say effectively the object possesses you. Like, and that's why I right. think that word possession and like possess is is really really crucial because it's not uh, it's it's already there's already a take there. It's not like a like a, a kind of anodyne orientation toward an object like a p- possession. That's a that's a take. That's a and 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 I think. There's also this nice thing in the uh, in that the section that I read um, in the German, uh, the phrases and and this is just a grammatical thing you were explaining to me. The ego of the child right. is the phrase in the German, and in the English, it's the child's ego. And what's really interesting there is very subtle is that makes it actually seem like the child possesses the ego, right? Which right. is not the point. It's actually counter to the point. Yeah. It's interesting. It, so you could almost say that the English translation like turns Freud into an ego psychologist just by yeah. the nature of the language itself. Yeah. It's right. Kind of right. Just the way that p- the possessive, just works, the way possessive know? works. Yeah. 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 Um, 
And so that's because the point is that the, the, because the point is this, the ego possesses the child. Right. And then the, the object, you know, the, the object possesses the, 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 the the subject. Do you know who said men have become the tools of their tools? I don't think so. (laughs) Henry David Thoreau. Isn't that what Freud's saying here? Like we're being possessed. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very nice. Yeah. That's pretty good. Um, wow. For, uh, (laughs) <laughs> that, while while his uh, the the unaccounted uh, female labor was happening for well, him to okay. live in one, well, yeah. <laughs> that, he allowed him to say that. So anyway, yeah, um, yeah. The <laughs> I, I mean, he has some sins, but he's pretty cool. He's a pretty cool guy, I think. Anyway, yeah, I I, I have to say, like some of my most, I I don't care about like the natural world at all. Like mm-hmm. it's it's meaningless to me. But when, when I've <laughs> when I've gone to Walden Pond, what a like phrase. <laughs> Uh, I've gone to all. I just ha- I I once was there and I walked around when I was in graduate school and I just mm-hmm. it was just stunning to me. Like I just and what was funny was the my the friend I went with Paul Eisenstein played wiffle ball on the beach with a bunch of little kids and I thought <laughs> you know we both had this kind. I was like wading in it and like feeling like thorough or whatever and mm-hmm. and I said we both kind of had a perfect little experience. So it was also the vacation uh, where I met Hillary. So that that that. Wow, this is kind of like a like a triple uh, grand slam of a vacation. Anyway, um, but I I I do want to. I I think this is. I think that that's. It's amazing, really, to see how, despite his comments about communism, there is this Mm -hmm. real other kind of anti-possession ethic and ethos and -hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. In the in in the book that seems the most anti-political of all Freud yeah. has written, right? Like I think mm-hmm. it's so funny because I think he gets so often by even by us characterized mm-hmm. as a conservative, and mm-hmm. yet there is this aspect to him that really there's a kind of radicality to him that's just lurking right there that comes that sort of crops up in these interesting ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that well, to me, this is. Um one of the things over the like the course of doing the well, this is also I uh, I'm obviously I mentioned the the anniversary for me at the beginning, but for the, this is our 80th podcast, which is I know just, that I know that yeah, yeah. crazy, yeah. and it's, it made me reflective of of just the conversations we've had and just like doing this for as long as we've done it. And um, one of the things I think we talked about this in the Christmas episode, or we did too. Uh, we were talking about Capra um, and It's a Wonderful Life, and one of the points we made was that. He, because he was one of these famous conservatives in Hollywood, yeah, and he made possibly the most, like you know, socialist uh, Hollywood films, at least the most popular socialist Hollywood. Yeah, that's pretty nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I think you know, it was written. You know, it's a wonderful life was written by a blacklisted writer, so there is this. Oh wow! So it does. There is there is actually a communist provenance of the film so it's not That's just right. that capro was this kind of crazy schizophrenic guy like he there is this <laughs> other but but i take your point anyway continue Sorry no no it's great well yeah. well it's just i mean he had to you know he could have he could have easily not right worked with right. a blacklist right writer, of course right? of know, course that would yeah. have been been yeah. very very easy for right. someone in his position to do in hollywood or he could have switched I, around the script i mean directors had the power then at least enough power he could have done whatever he wanted and he didn't do it so so there it's, you go. it's fascinating. And I think it, it leads to this thing that I think is present in this book, uh, which is that you're, um, I mean, if you really, if you really believe the drive and you really understand it's like, it's undermining, uh, power, like it can, it can undermine in this like very 
in a, in a, in a productive way, but it's, it has to be against your own like personal pathologies. Right. Like it just like, like Capra could have, like it could only have, have happened that way that like that, that Capra would have made that movie that, 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 that the conservative in, in, in Hollywood would have made that movie is I think that is, I think the claim and that like, it's only like Freud's uh, inclination to, to being, you know, not politically radical that he has these sentences and these ideas that push against his more like, I will say like uh risk averse, uh, like, like, um, you know, that push against this like status quo kind of inclination. And, and I, I think that you can read it in almost in this, this meta way, like this, this text about like, it's, it's very easy, um, and I and maybe and too simplistic to read if the drive is just like purely like self destruction and to not to see how it like this destructiveness can have a productivity to it. Absolutely, can, yeah. I think read, I'm, in you fact, read the text that way. Yeah. Don't you think? Would you say that the, all productivity is actually the result of of death drive? Yeah, I would. I mean, I would, and and I'm. So, uh, like, I'll I'll give this example. Uh, I don't know if, if we talked about it on the podcast before, but when. Uh, when I got this job interview, you knew that I wanted to, you knew that I wanted to stay on the East Coast. That's right. And and you were worried that and you said this to me and I'll never forget. You said, like, listen, like like you said to me, I don't know if you remember your exact phrasing. You said, listen, you understand psychoanalysis pretty well. You understand about the you know, you understand about the drive. And I, you're just like, I'm worried that you're going to undermine yourself on the job interview, obviously. Um, from one point of view, I didn't because I got the job and I'm in Claremont right now. Right. But, and then this is what I said to you on the phone when I called you to tell you you got the job. I said, you understand psychoanalysis pretty well. So you should have known that I wanted to stay on the East Coast and I would undermine myself into getting this <laughs> job in Southern California. Right, and that right. I think is a dimension to the drive that I don't, it, it is, is very much av- available. I think but like in Freud and I think a certain, like in the whole yeah, nobody of, of psychoanalysis. But yeah. no, but no one really. Talks yeah, I about know it. it's a great point, and I think you know. I think that the problem is there isn't enough of this, of the understanding the, about the way in which it's opposed to the conscious wish, right? Like yeah, the wish. Nice. I think the wish really, and Freud himself, obviously, like in interpretation of dreams, he constantly uses the term wish, and you're like, are you mm-hmm. talking about unconscious desire or conscious wishes? And mm-hmm. some of the time, it's not clear. Mm. Right. Like some mm. of those dreams, because he's t- like he talks about Anna Freud's dream about strawberries and it's a conscious wish for her. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. so it's not always clear. And of course, an unconscious desire can't be made into mm-hmm. a conscious wish because it's infected by death drive. And so I, I feel like that's maybe that there's not enough clarity about that, that contrast between unconscious desire and, and drive and, and then conscious wish right mm. can i wonder if this this will be helpful this is in that uh chapter seven also this line uh or a couple lines here um the manifestations of eros were conspicuous conspicuous and e- and noisy enough um oh, sorry i'll go back uh, a couple sentences before uh, the phenomena of life could be explained from the concurrent or mutually opposing actions of these two instincts, which is going to be Eros and Thanatos. It was not easy, however, to demonstrate the activities of this supposed death drive. It's instinct in the translation. Yeah. The manifestation of Eros were conspicuous and noisy enough. It might be assumed that the death drive operated silently within the organ organism 
towards its dissolution. But that, of course, was no proof. A more fruitful idea was that a portion of the drive is diverted towards the external world and comes to light as as a drive of aggressiveness and destructiveness. Interesting, right? So his idea is that aggressiveness is the visibility, is the visible part yes. of death drive. It's, like, it's, it's, such, it's such a great formulation, I think. And I, I love this notion of the silent, the silence of the death drive, too. Well, it, the, I, yeah. I mean, this is, this is good, too. And I mean, it helps that question you asked me earlier that I'm, I'm, we're trying to come back to is that, like, it's, it's not only aggressive and destructive. It's like, this is most visible. Right. Right. And, and, and I, and I think that just like my example of like, like get, like it, it made me like, I mean, it is true. Like, like I, even now a little bit, I mean, part of the reason is just like, we do, do things on zoom, but I all, all the time feel like I'm just like a grad student that got put on this like work study pilot program and any, at any moment they're just gonna take it away from me. Right. Uh, like we're, you know, working here. Uh, and, and, it's, it's, it's like, it, it was not, it was a, uh, you know, for its whole thing that like you're, that you're, we uh, people make fun of like, or I've seen this online that like, you know, like a, a deer is born and then it's just like a deer, but like a child, a human child has to be taken care of for 20 years and it can't do anything for itself. And I mean, this is why like Freud says that we're born too soon. Right. And like, you're always born too soon. Right. And whatever like, you do, whatever position you have. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think that's you absolutely have, right. Absolutely. You have right. to do it first before you have to do it first before you're good at it. Right. You know, like uh, anything, absolutely anything. And um, I think that, you know, the first time I ever taught, I think I've told you this first time I taught, I got into the classroom and about 20 minutes went by and it was like an hour long class. And I just, I just was like, um, uh, 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 I don't have anything more, so I guess that's the end. <laughs> like I just, I just like <laughs> the idea of talking to them for an hour was just, was, I just couldn't do it, and I just had to dismiss the class. And then the next time I came in, I was like, okay, I got to think of something to kind of get through the, through the time. But I, I think that's such a great point that that and that that original inadequacy mm-hmm. is is constitutive of what that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what subjectivity means. I think. Yeah. No, that's really nice, and I think that's. I think that's, that's the, uh, this other, this kind of, um, again, bringing a dialectic to the drive where it's neither this like, um, like destructive thing or this, this love thing where it's like, you, you cannot think of them as separate ideas. Like you have to think about how they depend like on each other and like they're, they're co-constitutive and, uh, and, and they just like, they work in this, they, they push in this, this direction is that like any kind of like, I guess I would say that that this you putting yourself in a position where you uh, have to end up doing something that makes you uncomfortable is like that's the that's the drive. That's like, absolutely drive, right? Yeah, Ryan. absolutely. Exactly. And then and then that you're right when you say like that forces you to like grow and become be capable of doing things. But that putting mm-hmm. yourself in that original position mm-hmm. is this. It's your, it's this very destructiveness of the drive that does that, I think. So mm-hmm. it also, I think it's also important. And I think this is, you know, Freud doesn't really say this here, but I think he's getting at it that, that death drive is individualizing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, mm-hmm. And, and that's the contrast that he's making is Eros is binding, but mm-hmm. that means that death drive is tied to freedom, right? Like that's the very freedom of the individual 
relative to the social order has to be linked to the the power of of, of drive and power of death drive, right? And then mm-hmm. and then any and then the the problem is, I think, if you think of the two dialectically, then any binding that occurs, what he calls eros, is always just done so that we can detach, right? Like so, mm-hmm. so that so that so there's no way in this supposed eternal struggle, eros could mm-hmm. ever win because it's the the enjoyment is found precisely in the detachment. Right, like even a don't you think even a couple that's true? Like even if it's mm-hmm. a couple, what you enjoy is the detachment from the rest of the society. You know, it's really funny that uh, yes, I think that's I think that's true. Like the detachment from the rest of the society, I think that's that's one way of reading it. I also think, um, and we were having a conversation. I'm not. I'm obviously not going to name names on this, but like. Um, there we know like a number of uh they're not academic couples but i know a number of couples that like they have jobs that keep them away from each other like most of the year okay and like some of them they some of these these couples they have children and they really like when their spouse is not around but they stay together and they're like but they like they love each other and like and and i like it's a thing and i don't know maybe it's just this is just like a facebook thing but like that's this is like another another way of understanding this where like you're never more, you're never more interesting to a romantic partner than when you're not around. When you're not there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would even say that what, and I think this is true about psychoanalysis, what you desire about the person is what's not there even when they're there. Yeah. Right. Like, and, and, and I think if you, once you understand that, then you really, I think you really understand something really crucial about relationships, right? Like that, 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 that what you're in love with is precisely what's not reducible to any of those positive physical or mm-hmm. mental, any positive characteristic whatsoever. It's instead what's not there in the mm-hmm. person, like that, that fundamental absence. And I think that really, like once you, that seems to me to be a real like if psychoanalysis gives you know romantic advice, like I think <laughs> that's the nature of it, right? Like mm-hmm. that 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 that's what you're in love with, or that's what you're drawn to. Yeah, no, that makes that it makes a lot it makes a lot of sense, and it makes um it makes more sense than like I think um a more uh well okay could you could you pit that against the, I'm gonna give you this scenario okay? okay I'm gonna give you a scenario so I'm gonna give you an eros and Thanatos reading of a relationship. Okay. And I want, and I want you to, I want you to make it dialectical. Okay. Okay. So it's a couple that they keep breaking up with each other and then getting back together. And I think an Eros and Thanatos reading is that, um, they destroy the, the, the relationship to make it interesting. And then they come back together and it's not interesting. And so the only way to make it more interesting is to destroy the relationship. So that, and that's this, I think that's this, uh, that, that, that functions. Dichotomizing way of yes, looking that's, at it. Yes, right. that's dichotomized. Right. Yeah. So bring, bring mm-hmm. me the, the, the dialectic. Well, I think what, I think if you understood it in terms of death drive, wouldn't you say mm-hmm. that they're coming together in order to, and are, are, are what they're enjoying really is the whole coming together and breaking up as a, as a whole. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. like you can't really, I think, separate those two. And it's the I I do think that the but I would say the enjoyment comes in 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 the loss, in the in the Mm -hmm. separation. And I think that's the 
I think that's the key that the, the, the okay. that enjoyment comes from the separation and it and the the coming together is a way to establish something that can be separated I would think but but I almost think there's a way in which that you get a double thing because when you come together as a couple you separate yourself from the society and then when mm-hmm. you separate from each other you separate yourself from that little mini society that you've already established so there's that's kind of nice. like two separations going on right nicely done no no I liked it a lot no that's I think I think you did that's yeah yeah well I mean I was already I already agreed but I think that you you, you pulled that apart really nicely I think um I do want it's, to end with yeah, superego because, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah. you know, I think when I, you know, I, again, I've read this book way too many times, but it's funny that I forgot how much superego is in here. So there's almost two chapters totally toward the end, totally devoted to superego. And mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because I think one would believe that Freud talks about superego because he's talking about a force that is binding, that's bringing us together as a society and, 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 and of course, working against your individualization. And I think in a certain sense, that's true, that, that superego is on the side of the social order. But mm-hmm. isn't it what interesting that he discovers is that it actually doesn't help the subject integrate into the society. It's like instead it's this assault. Superego is basically an assault on subjectivity in the name of the social order, but it doesn't help anything. I think that's what's so evident about what Freud's describing like it's just basically it just it just does damage it doesn't have there's mm. no upside to it it's not like oh you get the superego and now people get along better that is not the way it works mm. well it's not I, I think that is um you know sometimes we i think your your brother was the first person to ask this about like what, what would be uh and also highwick uh the like what would be like the if you're going to bring this into high school or like what's like what's what's a high school appropriate lens for, for Freud. And I, I remember, um, when I was in high school, uh, being taught superego in kind of the manner in which you just described as, as this very, uh, like exclusively, um, repressive external apparatus that gets internalized, right? It gets internalized. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, I, think, I mean, like, like Lord of the Flies was, that's how I was right. taught, like through, through Lord of the Flies, like the, the, the different characters occupy, uh, it ego and superego. Right. Uh, and, and yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting. So Dashiell and Theo, our twins are now taking advanced placement psychology, which you would think would be a total disaster. And it's, it pretty much is, but at least they, Theo was funny. He said, well, you know, at least the professor or the teacher he mm-hmm. keeps saying subconscious, but at least the text says unconscious. So I'm like, yeah, that's, oh, that's a little nice. small victory. And he's like, it doesn't <laughs> attack Freud. I'm like, okay, another small victory. But the one thing that it does do is it describes superego exactly like you were saying. Yeah. You mm-hmm. learn it in high school, right? It's this internalization of morality. Mm-hmm. And yes. I think what's great about Freud here is he shows it has nothing to do with morality at all. It's an mm-hmm. authority instead and that it's a it's a source of a, a it's interesting it's a double source of aggression right so it it, mm-hmm. it incorporates both our aggression towards the authority and the authority's aggression toward us brings mm-hmm. them together all to use as aggression that we inflict on ourselves so basically right. his idea is superego disaster right and yeah yeah well i guess this is this is interesting and then maybe this is the kind of slipperiness with uh the role that aggression plays in this and, and why I think 
aggression doesn't play the same part for Lacan or even for, for Slavoj, or I think certainly for, for you when you write about this, is that um, there's a way that because aggression being the like connective tissue, it sort of makes superego seem like the same idea as death drive. Right. If, right, if you right. only understand death drive right. in the way as this like split where it's just destructive and aggressive. Right, right. How would it be different? Right. How, How would, would it be, be different? different? And yeah. I think like thinking, I almost think this is one of the great problems that not enough people try to deal with thinking through mm. the relationship between death drive and superego. Right. Like mm. doesn't it, my idea is that it has to, and I think it has to be this, that, that death drive, that super, sorry, that superego takes up death drive and, and, and causes it to work on behalf of the social authority and thus rechannels it into this self-assault that actually doesn't free you in the way that death drive frees you. So it, 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 actually, it actually further imprisons you once uh-huh. it's diverted into this superegoic channel. But I don't know. I mean, that's just my idea. I, I think it's a really hard question. And, yeah. Uh, well, know. well, because I don't think. Well, like in the story that I told of me getting in, in in the Death Drive story, I told of me getting hired, of me like undermining my conscious wish to to remain in the Northeast. Um, like superego doesn't play a part in that. Like that's right, right, uh, right. That, that's right. that's as you just put it. That's this like kind of like emancipatory quality that the drive has. Right. Of of like of, of really like pushing you outside of yourself in uh in in finding a new. I mean this this also. This is perfectly consonant with um, what Freud talks about with the drive in um, the famously and beyond the pleasure principle as like an original state of loss. Right. Is like you're continuing to, again, as I I put it like on like 20 minutes ago, like you're continuing to be born too soon, but in new situations, right? That's that, that original state of loss. So it's not this like, that's how. I think it's easy to read that in like a cynical way, which is like, yeah, we never get anywhere. It's just like status quo forever. And it's like, no, that's not it. Like you're repeating what gets repeated is that same. Something uh, generative. Yeah, exactly. That's what's generative. Cause, cause each, 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 it's like, I think you have to think of it this way, right? Like with death drive that you lose an object into being right. Like like you lose something so that you can then start to desire. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. and I think that, that to me, that's the way you have to make sense of it. And that's why, it's not, and I think the point of psychoanalysis is there aren't just objects out there that you desire, right? I think, isn't that the real difference between all these other, like, even evolutionary explanations and regular psychological explanations that, that they're, they think, oh, there's just objects out there. And then we look at them, we say, like, oh, that one seems desirable, I'm desiring it. But I think the idea of psychoanalysis is that we have to actually lose an object into mm-hmm. desirability, into making something desirable, and that... When we're looking out and surveying the world, if there wasn't something lost, there wouldn't be anything desirable. Nice. Nice. That's very okay. And so that is how that's how the drive works. Right. Independent of superego. Independent of superego. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah. now bring superego into that well, equation. Th- okay. So then now <laughs> what superego does is marshal that force of drive mm-hmm. and force that loss into being something socially productive. So it's trying, mm-hmm. so, and, and the problem is that it can never be. So it yeah. gives you an eternal quest to mm-hmm. make <laughs> your drive, your loss into something that's actually socially beneficial, right? And, and it never will be. 
And so mm. you get, that's how, I think that's how neurosis forms, right? Like that's at least mm. one way that neurosis forms because you you're stuck in that, in that you're trying to do something. And this is why Freud says the more you give into the superego, the more it wants, right? Like you can't, yeah. there's no way to appease it because it's trying to ask you to do something that's impossible. That is make your drive serve the social interest and it cannot do that. Okay, so this is interesting, is that, and I think that this is, again, this, like, so the slipperiness is, like, in this text is because of how Freud brings aggression to it. But I think maybe in other texts, it's the idea of authority. Because um, to say that the drive, like, authorizes, you know, that which you do is different from talking about the authority of the superego. Right. Like it's right. two, two different. So like if, and again, and maybe that's where the, it, it's, it's, it's better pro- just to not to use that word to describe the drive, but to say, as you, as you put it like a couple seconds ago, like, uh, like it's the, the, the drive needs to be thought of and it's in, in, in a generative way, even if you're thinking about like, actually, especially if you're thinking about it being destructive. Right. Right. Has, especially. Right. That's the, what's generative about it is that it destroys and, something into being. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. And superego not doesn't follow the same. Story. It's not generative. I think. I think that's the thing. I think that's the mm. thing, right? Like it, I, bu- I buy that. I like that a lot. Yeah, that it's that, that, that it's a way to. Even though what's what's paradoxical is that superego is trying to get drive to serve the social interest, mm-hmm. but it, but in doing so, it 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 it, it squelches the productivity of it. So I, I don't mm. know. I think mm-hmm. I think that's what happens. But you know, it's, again, I think it's just an incredibly complex and rich terrain to think about that relationship and Freud he just lays it out he doesn't really explore it really in no, any in any way I, yeah i mean like if anything like this conversation what has convinced me that like this needed a uh, this needed a sequel yeah and, the book did and, yeah 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 the yeah, book did yeah, and and that yeah. he he um like to move on to fetishism in a which is his next way, major work after this next right? major yeah. work yeah yeah it makes sense in that he's well, the thread that goes forward is like it's the religious thing in Future of Illusion talks about religion. And then this begins with oceanic feeling. And then, you know, he's going to and then he talks also about um, possessions and, and like kind of I guess what we might say is that like like bad objects. Right. And then uh, or, you know, objects that exert a kind of a super egoic authority on on the subject. And then that's kind of the thread that goes into to, to fetishism and what doesn't. And also, like, I mean, I think he's still, I guess he's still working on the idea of, like, religion being this, like, primary glue for society. Right, that's and what he's thinking it, about, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he continues yeah. to think through that. But he doesn't, I guess, that's interesting. He doesn't think about... And that's why Moses, too, at the end, right? That's what, Agreed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he, but he doesn't put... Because this is, after Freud, I think... It's it's easy to see how I mean I think us I think we do this I think Lacan does this is that like the glue is is the drive right and so right. it's it's kind of it's interesting that like for I think Freud get maybe you might say he gets mired in a uh, in a in a form content yeah thing where, where, where he's yeah. focused strictly on the content and he doesn't see that in his diagnosis of like religious content he's coming up with a like a theory of form that is bigger and more complicated than that. And it needs like, you know, more, more teasing out. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Maybe, I think that's yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. 
That's absolutely right. Hmm. That he kind of, and I think you're right. So he needed to write a sequel. <laughs> he, he didn't write one. So, yeah. I, but I, I think you know to it's. It, it, I feel like this is that in a certain way. I feel like this is. I don't know. Do you think it's fair? I'm, I wonder if I'm overstating it to say that okay. this is his real. If you had to say there's one definitive statement book or work hmm. by mm-hmm. Freud, I think mm-hmm. I would say this one. I think mm-hmm. I would. But but I'm, I mean, I'm willing to be convinced that that's wrong. But Well, um, I th- think the only one that I would say would challenge this is um, would be Beyond the Pleasure Principle. But this is more, um, I mean, since this is working in its wake, it's it and it's this is broader in yeah. like in 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 its uh in its scope i would be inclined to agree with you but that's something to track yeah it's interesting i mean the problem these, yeah. is isn't the problem that it's it it it, it has this whole dichotomous drive thing that really it well, can yeah. be confused and the aggression it can be misleading about the drive i think and and you and i have both taught this book and, and had this problem that that people glom onto this oh, we're just instinctively aggressive and that becomes this, this well thing. yeah and it's and I think it's out there and available and I know that like you know um I if you go on uh if you if you were to look up like a summary of this and then you were, you're following that thread like the things that that are, are that are widely available that that I that I think people um attach themselves to are uh like discourses on eros and, and thanatos and the right. and, and 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 i think that um it's it's kind of seems more um you know more like yin and yang right like right, it seems right, like there, right, there's right, almost right, right, there's almost right. something because he's being um unabashedly like atheistic like there's almost something that's like like a kind of like an eastern mysticism mysticism about this and 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 i think um, I don't know. It's just, I just know that this is out there because I, like, I, I have like, I've, I've seen it. I've, I've just, I've seen it in, in papers and things. And it's not like, it's not like wrong because like, as we've kind of like worked through, like it's an available reading. Like, I don't think that like there, it's very subtle where like the word choices and the ideas that like, that it need that the two things need to be thought um, together. And like, that's again, that's something that like, Lacan or, or like, a, or bringing a dialectics to it does, uh, because he's definitely committed to the, like the, the dichotomous the, relationship. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but, um, but yeah, I think that it's it just, you've got these two things and then he's writing it in an interwar period. That's going to lead to another world war. And like to, you know, the, the almost the extermination of the the Jewish people, and it seems like ah, well, that's the Thanatos, right? And uh, and and it and it wins, and you know, he's he's really skeptical of uh, of civilization and like what can be the the glue of civilization. Like we've moved past the idea of it being religion, so there 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 really there can't be anything. There can't be like a shared. Uh, illusion for 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 civilization and society anymore and it's just we're gonna be at war with each other and what again because he sets it up as an opposition what you don't see is how the drive can be generative and i don't think necessarily that he sees it at right. this time yeah i don't think he does either yeah yeah so anyway i uh i my I, my lesson is is, a, is an interesting one for this one okay. I, I think so unless you have one that's maybe comes to mind 
Oh, if I if I have something less interesting, I'll, I'll offer it. But okay. <laughs> so I was going to say, the lesson is actually watch "In the Mood for Love" by Wong Kar Wai. Oh wow! Okay. Because here's what I think: I think it's right. maybe the best film. Because I thought I thought one of the ideas that I liked so much that we got to was the way in which you're in what you're in love with is the absence within the other. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. this is a film, it's such a great film about the absence in the other and how that's what we're drawn to. And he even does it, he shows it filmically. You know, it's really, I mean, yeah. It's also, I think, one of the great compulsion to repeat films. Yeah, it, it really is. It's, it's yeah. just really a basic, your basic course in psychoanalysis, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nicely done. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you know, r- very, very quickly, just like a, a bit of a... Um, so Wong Kar Wai wanted to, so it takes place in like the, um, uh, 50, 50s and sixties or is it sixties? I, I think. Yeah. Sixties. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he could not find in Hong Kong and he could not really find a lot of, uh, buildings or just like exterior shots that looked like it was Hong Kong in the sixties. So he had to shoot it almost entirely like it's these interior shots. Oh, and wow. I didn't know that's yeah, why. Yeah, and my God, do you feel like you're in Hong Kong in the '60s? But if you think about it, it's almost in, you're almost you're inside almost the entire time, right? But he right. he makes that he makes it feel. I mean, it's because of their relationship, right? Um, I, I think is, right. is is part of the reason. Yes, that no, that's that's good. Um, yeah. And I I fear that the thing that I just said was perhaps a little too interesting about uh, biographical uh, information about the film. Yeah, so I, I was wish, interested. So there well, we go. I, I should have offered something less interesting. <laughs> Thank you so much, Todd. All right. Over and out, Ryan. <laughs> over and out.